Well, everyone, good morning and happy Father's Day. Let's have a round of applause for fathers, shall we, in celebration of this? <clears throat> we certainly know this day comes uh, once a year, and uh, it's time to celebrate fathers, whether that's a biological father, a father figure. We all have those, uh, or most of not all have those uh, men who've played those very uh, important, critical uh, positions and roles in our lives. <clears throat> I was doing some reading, you know, where did, how long has Father's Day been around? Where did it come from? And uh, it's a really sad, I won't tell the details of the sad story necessarily, but uh, just about like over 100 years ago, uh, the celebration of Father's Day came out of this very, very tragic uh, mining accident in West Virginia. Uh, some details went on and about uh, just shy of, I think, 350 men lost their lives in this freak accident in the mine and in this particular town in West Virginia with the fallout among the many, many, you know, terrible things that happened. Uh, over 1,000 children were left fatherless. List uh, because of these, you know, 300 some deaths. Uh, so we won't, well, just the nature of Ecclesiastes, it's going to have some sad parts today, but I don't want this to be one of them. Uh, so I just wanted to, you know, certainly take the time, acknowledge, thank, lift up, uh, show gratitude to anyone who uh, has that father role in their life, those who are fathers, certainly we could not go through life without you. Uh, one thing I did want to share, you know, for whatever reason, probably because men don't care all that much, you know, Father's Day doesn't bring with the, the pomp and circumstance of a Mother's Day, uh, but you are no less of value no less important. In fact, I came across probably the best, one of the best quotes about fathers that it came from the late Dr. Billy Graham. Here's what he had to say about fathers. He said, a good father is one of the most unsung, unpraised, unnoticed, and yet one of the most valuable assets in our society. So for the fathers in the crowd and, you know, for kids or even adult children, you know, <clears throat> let dads have a nap today, laugh at all their jokes, honor them, all that good stuff. So with that, a final round of applause and students, sixth or eighth grade, you are free to go next door to the student wing. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, dive into Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Let's all pray. Uh, Father, in celebrating this day, yes, we are celebrating earthly fathers, but uh, it can be a, uh, for some people, it is a joyous day. For others, it is a challenging, uh, difficult day, just depending on what our own personal stories are, whether our fathers are with us or not. Uh, what comes to mind is a line in that last song we all sing together is that I am surrounded by the arms of the Father. And I pray this morning that no matter our earthly relationships, that we can look to you and not only look to you, but trust in you for that strength, that comfort, that support, and that unconditional love that only you can give. So that is my prayer that we feel that going into the rest of the morning throughout the rest of the day, that when we think of Father, not only for those uh, who you've given us here on earth, but we can think of you, you, you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in this series on Ecclesiastes, and it's uh, kind of in the middle of the Old Testament, and it's what we call wisdom literature. Uh, it's not a piece of history. It's, uh, if, this were, if we put the book of Ecclesiastes on a shelf in a bookstore today, it would likely be found in the poetry section. And if we were to just kind of read out of the blue just you know, certain uh, passages or sections from the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, you'd probably have the thought that, oh, wow, that doesn't sound very biblical. 
or that doesn't sound like it should come from the Bible. Uh, many people think of this book as pessimistic, uh, very dour, very down. And honestly, yeah, many sections, in fact, most of the book kind of has that feel to it. Uh, I was discussing this with uh, some peers of mine also in ministry and just talking about that is just seemingly, you know, hopelessness, hopelessness, hopelessness. And then at the very end of the book, it's 12 chapters long, and that's where the hope comes in. But until then, we have to sustain some very real, harsh, um, yeah, just some a dose of reality that many of us uh, aren't really accustomed to. It's a book that takes a very hard look at life and, again, just brings this sense of realism that uh, if we can put it to the side, then we'd very like to, very much like to. If you read this entire book, you know, three really, really happy themes keep coming up over and over again. Uh, one is uh, just the passage of time, that time goes on, we can't control it, uh, we can't stop it, we can't make it go faster, we can't escape it. No matter what happens, uh, time just keeps on going, and it can't be stopped. One thing that came to mind, uh, this kind of popped up on the radar a couple years ago in kind of the National Geographic circles. We have this picture of a shark, we'll take a look at him up on the screen here. Uh, apparently, now I'm not a scientist, but apparently scientists is a Greenland shark and they're known for living a long, 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 long time. And this particular shark, if the scientists are to be trusted and believed, could be as old as between like 350 and 500 years. For whatever reason, they put up the year, this shark was alive in the year 1672 and he looks it, doesn't he? <laughs> looks every bit of his age. This might be an odd illustration, but I, I came, by, came by this honestly this week, and I just thought about this shark, and I'm like, this guy, centuries old, just swims all day and eats, and that's his life. And he was here before I was here, and there's a solid chance that he'll be here uh, after I'm gone. It's the same case for all of you. Does that make any sense? Here we are toiling and working hard and going through tragedy and hardships, good things, you know, joyful moments as well, but all the while, on either side of our lives is this guy doing nothing. Does that make any logical sense to anybody? It doesn't to me. Such is the nature of time and how some things are just, I don't know, they're head scratchers. We'll let him go back to swimming. He can go off the screen. One thing is time goes on. Another theme that you'll find in the book of Ecclesiastes is that death comes to everyone. Uh, I like the saying, I think it was a Hank Williams song, you know, probably in the 40s, had this song, I'll Never Get Out of This World Alive. That is the theme of this book. Again, this is a really, really cheery thing. And we'll, I, I've strategically tried to play some humor along the way. <clears throat> but please. <laughs> Thank you. <clears throat> but one thing is, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but a theme of this book that, again, I want to I deal with the Bible honestly is, is that I'll die, you die, everyone that we love is going to die, and sometimes that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and we like to ignore it, we don't like to deal with it, but the truth is, death comes to everybody. That is one of the hard truths of life that uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes uh, points out. And so if time goes on is one and death comes to everybody is a second, then the third and final big theme of Ecclesiastes is just life is unpredictable. I don't know if you're someone who spends more time just accepting things or if you're someone who spends more time trying to figure things out, but it just seems that right when you think you got life figured out, a curveball comes your way and you're like, I did not see this coming. Bad things happen to good people. Awesome things happen to terrible people. 
money and fortune and good things come to those who we really don't think deserve it. And we can think of someone who uh, we would easily, you know, nominate for sainthood. And it has just been uh, just one bad thing after another for their lives. Life is unpredictable. And the author of Ecclesiastes would say, this is how life is. And I don't know if there's anything that can be done about it. And that's kind of like the feeling of almost hopelessness that this entire book, except to the very end, has all about it. Uh, the writer says that this life is hevel, that good Jewish word. Everyone said the word hevel. All right. So actually, <laughs> actually, I said just pronounced hevel. I just wanted to see who would do the part. But that word hevel, here's what, his, uh, there's this constant refrain all through the book of Ecclesiastes. And he says, life is hevel. And that means that life is temporary and it can't be, it can't be controlled. Uh, this word hevel is translated to vapor or mist or breath. You know, you think of uh, going outside on a cold winter morning, you can see your breath and you can see it. It looks like you can grab onto it, but if it falls right through your fingers, it cannot be contained. And it is just that quick and just that temporary. Hevel. Some translations say that, you know, everything is meaningless, meaningless. Some people say, every, some translations say uh, it's all vanity. Nothing new under the sun. But again, this book, it gives us heavy, heavy doses of reality, and it's a book that doesn't soften anything at all. Uh, I've heard the phrase that uh, the truth is like wine. It won't appeal to children. And I think uh, this book is exactly like that. The book of Ecclesiastes is like wine. It will not appeal to children. So eventually, if you kind of like read between the lines of this book, the goal here is the author wants to target ways that people try to find meaning outside of God. And he has a laundry list. We've gotten into some of that, the first three chapters, and we're in this book the entire summer. But he lays out, hey, you know, I tried to find meaning in this, and it didn't work out. I tried to find meaning in this, and all I found was emptiness. Eventually, the goal is to say, the only place that we're going to find meaning is in God. So either kind of between the lines or more in more obvious ways at the end of the book, the author is saying, you know, try and put your fulfillment, your purpose, your meaning, your happiness, your joy, whatever, in anything, but it's going to come up empty. The only way you're going to actually find what your soul is crying for is if you go directly to God. That is the only answer. That's kind of like the ending that's being given away. <clears throat> but we'll kind of interlace this with other things. So just the nature of this, again, it's kind of like a wisdom book. So this kind of has its uh, place right alongside the book of Psalms and the book of Job and the book of Proverbs. So in some ways, as I read these 11 verses from Ecclesiastes 4, uh, the preacher in me, the, the, the sermonizer in me would want to kind of stop and you know, make really concrete points along the way. But uh, just when we kind of read through this and when the point comes where it seems like we should make a point, we're going to move on, just the nature of the book. But we are going to land somewhere uh, concretely at the end. Ecclesiastes 4, here are the first few verses. The guy writes, again, I observed all the oppression that takes place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed with no one to comfort them. The oppressors have great power and their victims are helpless. So I concluded that the dead are better off than the living. But most fortunate of all are those who are not yet born, for they have not seen all the evil that is done under the sun. How do you feel? 
We know that uh, bullying, oppression, whatever synonyms we want to throw alongside this, we know that oppression is nothing new. Uh, Maybe you saw just last Sunday something in the news, a piece of oppression that came right in the headlines this last week. You may have seen this uh, young man, Justin Bieber, calling out Tom Cruise for a fight. Did any of us see this? Anyone see this at all? Last Sunday, Bieber put out this, this tweet. Out of nowhere, no context, he says, I want to challenge Tom Cruise to a fight in the octagon. Tom, if you don't take this fight, you're scared and you will never live it down. Who is willing to put on the fight? And he tags Dana White, the head of uh, UFC Ultimate Fighting Championship, the world's largest mixed martial arts organization. Uh, people, did anyone see this? I, I, I don't maybe go to the, okay, so yeah. So if it's a head scratcher to you, you're probably in a good spot because it's a head scratcher to me. It's a head scratcher to everyone who came across this thing. Uh, I don't think anything's come of this since last Sunday, uh, but one thing that is, has inspired, th- there's a 31-year difference between these two, by the way. Bieber is 25 years old. Tom Cruise is 56. I don't know how you feel about Tom Cruise. I think he's a fantastic actor. Outside of that, I think he's a nut. You might be in the same boat as me. <laughs> but if there's a fight between these two, I think we'd probably all put our money on Mr. Cruise, right? Anyway, so this has inspired other people. They've been inspired, called the 31-year challenge, and people have been calling out just random celebrities who are 31 years older than them. So like, I need to do this. So I have decided, I have decided, I am hereby calling out Mr. Ray Romano. We are going to fight. And I'm going to go for his nose first. (laughs) Obviously, this is not the kind of oppression that the author of Ecclesiastes has in mind. Um, Typically what uh, myself or what Roger would do in this point is try and find a real world example of just kind of the injustice and oppression that uh, the world is not short on, whether it's in this country or overseas or whatever. Um, But honestly, the word oppression, oppression looks a little differently to everybody. We all know it's injustice, but honestly, I was like, I started looking like, I'm not even gonna look for oppression because every one of us in a fraction of a second can come up with innumerable examples that ever we've experienced ourselves or we've seen in the headlines, just something just so uh, anti-human being, like something as extreme as a genocide or I don't even know what would be on the other end of the spectrum. But in a fraction of a second, we can immediately call to mind examples, real world examples of where oppression seemed like it was winning the day. And we just ask, where is the justice? And is there anything that can be done? And also just kind of add to the whole, this doesn't make any sense, this world makes no sense at all. It's one of these things we can see it on the news or read it and say, that's terrible. And then swipe left or right and go back to Instagram or Facebook. You know, the author says, I concluded that the dead are better off than the living. The most fortunate of all are those who are not yet born, for they have not seen all the evil that is done under the sun. If we're being honest, this, now this, does, this worldview does not line up with the heart of Jesus, but our hearts don't always as well. If we're being honest with ourselves, uh, we can throw up our hands sometimes and come to the exact same conclusion. Maybe those who are gone are better off than we are. Even better, maybe those who aren't even born had the best deal of it all. Now that is a very nihilistic way to look at the world. And most of us don't walk around with this. But when we come right up against this thing called despair, and that's where our hearts can be dragged to sometimes. Now again, does that line up with how Jesus thinks? No, I don't think so. 
if there's one thing that Jesus offers that we can be in short supply of, that is hope and that is truth. But the other side of truth is evil can feel so oppressive that we want to give up. And that's the mindset some people have, that because evil is so oppressive, better to be dead or unborn than alive. Now, this would be an example of where we would like to make a really concrete, hopeful, applicable statement out of this. But in keeping with the theme of the book, we're going to keep on going. We're going to get to hope at the end, but we're not there yet. The guy keeps writing in verse four. He says, then I observed that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. But this too is meaningless. Hevel, vapor, wind, breath, like chasing the wind. Then he throws out these two proverbs, fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. And yet better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls of with hard work and chasing the wind. He says that most people are motivated by envy, which a lot of people are. You might say, yeah, that sounds right. That sounds very much in line with uh, what I've observed in the world. I didn't always believe this or think this way, but uh, I was thinking of a a memory. I was probably 20, 21, 22, something like that, and uh, I was with my home church in Indianapolis. We took this uh, mission trip up to New England. It's one of the most uh, post, uh, I forget what organization put out. I think it was Barna, but they put out like the 10 most post-Christian cities in America, and this tracks like, you know, how often or or not often people go to church, how often people are reading their Bible, so they're done with Christianity. And eight out of the, 10, eight out of the top 10 are in New England. So we were up there, and uh, we were doing some, in a, some cleanup work in some park, and uh, this guy named John, he's about 20, 25 years older than me, and he was just talking, telling the story about uh, some friends of his, some people he knew and were close with, and just talking about the, like, the levels of like, envy and jealousy and pettiness kind of going on in this friend circle. And I was kind of taking this in. I don't always, uh, I, I tend more to listen than speak up a lot of the time. And John could tell, like, I had something on my mind. He's like, you know, what are you thinking? You know, share with the group. And I just said, I, again, you know, 20-year-old Andrew. I said, I don't know. I just assumed that when, you know, people grew up and became adults, they would act like adults. <laughs> and then, like, he wasn't even smiling. He just looked at me and said, why would you ever think that? <laughs> The author of Ecclesiastes knows this very well. Uh, So many of us, you know, we look around, you know, much like children, we look around and we say, I want that. Could be a good thing, could be something that destroys us or uh, brings harm, you know, unpurposefully into our lives. But I, I just, I just, whenever I think of like materialism and wanting things out of envy, you know, envy says like, not only do I want what you have, but I want to take it away from you. I think that's one of the differences between envy and jealousy. Um, But, you know, words, they can be synonyms. Um, but I just remember, again, my, my home church in Indianapolis, whenever my, uh, the, the lead pastor there would talk about this sort of thing, he would always say, and I, I've remembered, it's kind of tattooed on my brain, that when it comes to envy and materialism and kind of looking at things and saying, I want that, maybe you can relate that we buy things that we don't want with money that we don't have to impress people that we don't even like. Does this sound? <laughs> How does it sound? Yeah, exactly. I wish I could take credit for that. I can't. But the writer of Ecclesiastes says... You know, even putting envy to the side and just wanting, you know, things, things, things. He says it's all a waste. It's all smoke. We know the phrase, you can't take it with you. But in the section, he does offer some brief wisdom on the nature of work. You know, he talks about, you know, fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. Uh, That one sounds like a piece out of Proverbs. I'll read it from Proverbs 6. 
that author says, take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer, gathering food for the winter. But you, lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you wake up? A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. So there is something to be said for work and hard work in that good work ethic that many of us have and grew up with. That's what he's getting at, you know, when he says, fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. Work is a need. But then he lays down this other proverb that points to the other extreme. He says, better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. He's like, there's a balance you can have. We can all probably point to people that they just work, work, work all the time, uh, working you know, 70, 80 hour work weeks. They come home to sleep, maybe have a meal and they're back at the office. That's no good either. And in fact, he's gonna have an example of this a little bit later. So he says, laziness is no good, but too much work is just as bad. Better to have one handful of peace than both hands filled with work and worry. Maybe take a moment to think, you know, what are your hands filled with in this metaphor? So he keeps talking. Verse 7, he said, I observed yet another example of something meaningless under the sun. This is the case of a man who is all alone, without a child or a brother, yet who works hard to gain as much wealth as he can. But then he asks himself, who am I working for? Why am I giving up so much pleasure now? It's also meaningless and depressing. Yes, amen, author. We could all probably agree we wouldn't need someone to stand on stage to tell us to say a life of isolation and loneliness is a pretty terrible life. You know, we've heard it said, you know, those famous 10 words that none of us are going to say on our deathbed. I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Maybe we've heard that and not one person is going to say that when it's uh, our last days. <clears throat> but even though he calls out so many things as meaningless and just vapor and breath, just impermanent and temporary, he does have the wisdom to say that hard work is meaningless without people to share the fruit with. You know, hopefully there's this attitude that if we do work hard, it's, it's for something and that it's for, it's for our wife, it's for our husband, it's for our family, it's those that we love for. That work itself is not the, uh, the end. That's not exactly what the goal is. The goal is togetherness. The goal is providing for people that we love. The goal is if we want to, you know, throw some money toward uh, good memories, good experiences, vacations, I think that's very much okay, even healthy, a good thing to pursue. But this author would say, don't get into the lifestyle of just work, 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 work. That's not what it's about. It has its place, but at the end of the day, it's about sharing this with people that you love. That's a, kind of where we're gonna end today, a piece of it. Jesus might even take this a step further. You know, he has his own thoughts about work and accumulating wealth and all that for ourselves. He has this parable from Luke chapter 13, and I pulled this from, from the message translation. So someone out of the crowd said, teacher, that'd be Jesus, teacher, order my brother to give me a fair share of the family inheritance. And he replied, mister, what makes you think it's any of my business to be a judge or mediator for you? But speaking to the people, he went on, he said, take care, protect yourself against the least bit of greed. Life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. I'll read that again, even though Jesus himself didn't repeat it. Life is not defined by what you have, even when you have a lot. Then he told them this story. 
The farm of a certain rich man produced a terrific crop. He talked to himself, what can I do? My barn isn't big enough for this harvest. Then he said, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I'll gather in all my grain and goods and I'll say to myself, self, you've done well. You've got it made and can now retire. Take it easy and have the time of your life. And just then God showed up and said, fool, tonight you die and your barn full of goods, who gets it? Jesus says, that's what happens when you fill your barn with self and not with God. We're not there yet, but where we're going to end is in a world where so much is meaningless and temporary and has little value, a life spent with God and spent well with others you love, that is where we're going to find meaning. Anything else is just empty. That's where we're going to end, but we're not there yet. So the author of Ecclesiastes, uh, he decided to take a turn in the chapter. He's going to offer some wisdom instead of just depression ad nauseum. Kind of going back to this, uh, combating a life of isolation. Verse 9 in Ecclesiastes 4, the guy writes, Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But, if someone, but someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm. But how can one be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Uh, I know I use this real life example a lot with students. I don't know if I've talked about this guy from this stage, but if so, uh, you get him again. Uh, perhaps it was about 15 years ago. You remember the story of the hiker Aaron Ralston. They made a movie about it uh, you know, some years ago called 127 Hours. Uh, here's how this thing went. Uh, on April 26, 2003, Aaron Ralston was canyoneering alone through Blue John Canyon. Uh, it's just south of the Horseshoe Canyon there in Canyonlands National Park. I think I've seen some of you have been there with pictures on Facebook. Anyway, while he was uh, descending into the lower stretches of the Slot Canyon, this is the actual uh, slot that, uh, that we're talking about, a suspended boulder, you can see the culprit in the photo, a suspended boulder became dislodged while he was climbing down from it, and the rock smashed his left hand and then crushed his right hand against the canyon wall. And his biggest mistake, you might know this, Ralston had not informed anyone of his hiking plans, nor did he have any way to call for help. Really, the time before uh, cell phone use was commonplace. He went out that day completely alone. And he was there for five days. Again, that movie's called 127 Hours. And many of us, we know the story. After five whole days, the only way that he was going to save his life was to amputate his own arm. And he had to do so with a very, very cheap multi-tool. But those five days all alone, he said he allowed himself one scream or one shout per day. But those five days gave him a lot of time to think about relationships, life, everything that might come to the mind of someone who thinks they're not long for this world. In those five days of isolation, knowing that no one knew where he was, he writes this in his book, Between a Rock and a Hard Place. He wrote this, he said, perhaps it's time I'm used to close those chapters and remember the enduring lesson of my entrapment that relationships, not accomplishments, are what's important in life. And then he goes on further to say in his book that, quote, my life is about being with my family. This is what's important. 
the author of Ecclesiastes would wholeheartedly agree. It's at this point, not to, again, to put too fine a point on it, the writer of Ecclesiastes is shouting to the reader, do not go through life alone. He thinks he can't put it any clearer. Do not go through life alone. The greater your circle or support system, the better. Jesus would agree with this. We agree with this at Southwest, that we are created to live life with one another, and we're commanded to live life with one another as well. You may have heard it said that there are 59 one another statements in the New Testament. I'm not going to read all of them, but I'm going to read a lot. All the way from the Gospel of Mark to the Epistle of 2 John. Be at peace with each other. Wash one another's feet. Love one another. Be devoted to one another. Honor one another above yourselves. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another. Have equal concern for each other. Serve one another in love. Carry each other's burdens. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Do not lie to each other. Make your love increase and overflow for each other. Encourage each other. Build each other up. Encourage one another daily. Spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Do not slander one another. Don't grumble against each other. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other. Love one another deeply from the heart. Live in harmony with one another. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. And the last six, they're all the same, but I want to read all six because they're the most important. All from First and Second John. Love one another. 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 Do you get the sense that being alone is a good thing at all? It feels like there's a lot of repetition in the book of Ecclesiastes because there is. Uh, sometimes I view this book as listening to some wise old guy in a rocking chair with a whole lot of wisdom to offer, but not a lot of hope. Just some really old cynical, some curmudgeon who just had a hard life and you're going to hear about it. But like I said, with the book of Ecclesiastes, the hope comes at the end. And part of me feels like it would be a little bit cheating to jump to chapter 12, so we're not going to jump there. We'll get there toward the end of summer. But here's where we can find some hope now. Because even though Jesus wasn't on the scene yet, they didn't know when Jesus was going to come, this Messiah figure. Um, but if you look hard enough, you can find him. One thing that we're in the practice of doing every single week is the practice of communion. If you're on that team, uh, you can get in a position for that. And thank you for, for uh, serving in that way. But one of the many times that Jesus gave us hope was through the institution of communion. Many of us, we know the scene. He's uh, about to be portrayed into the hands of uh, the Romans and the Jewish leaders. And he's having this one last meal with uh, his 12 and then 11 guys who... Um, who he's just poured his entire life into. And yeah, he says, you know, hey, this bread, this is representative of my body that's going to be broken for you. And this is the wine, we have juice. This is my blood that's going to be shed for you. They didn't know what it was all about when he was saying that in the moment. They had no idea what was about to come. But in Mark's version, uh, he kind of ushers in some hope that, uh, that he's gonna come again. That he's not going, when he does leave, he's not going to be gone forever. 
Now, some of us, we might feel like, you know, we have lived an Ecclesiastes kind of life, that you are no stranger to uh, the seeming hopelessness that this author talks about. And others are like, ooh, I hope I never have to deal with that. And like, some of you might be like, hey, my life's just been really, really good, all things considered. No matter where that is, um, Jesus kind of puts in some hope for us because we don't have Jesus physically with us now, but the day is coming. This is what he says when he's talking about communion in Mark chapter 14. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice for many. I tell you the truth, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He put in that tiny bit of hope saying, hey, the kingdom's coming, I'm coming again. And if you need to, hold on, hold on to that piece of hope. I'll pray for us, we'll practice this and then just a few final comments afterward. Let's pray. Uh, Father, in your word here, uh, we threw out um, a lot of things that uh, maybe feelings or thoughts that we just don't like dealing with. Uh, but also, um, we don't want to go through the world just with rose-colored glasses. We want, to, we want happiness. We want meaning. We want hope. We want joy. We want all that. But also, uh, life is not 100% made up of those things. And it's in those other things where many of us came to know you for the very first time that even in the midst of that, one thing that sets us apart is that we have hope in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of depression, in the midst of hopelessness, that hope is ever present. So on this Father's Day, help us look to you as Father, just at least uh, in these next few moments, that everything that comes with that, unconditional love, unconditional support, unconditional understanding, and let's cling to the hope that we can find in you and only in you. It's in your son Jesus' name that we all pray. Amen.